...entered into the heaven of heavens, and he pulls behind him, uh, not like Santa Claus, but like the Savior he is, a people in his train that he will redeem. Father, how we thank you that you sent Jesus to save his people from their sins, and we're going to see that today as we look at the Emmanuel promise. Open our ears that we might see Christ, that we might see heaven that he's accomplished, and that we might be happy in him. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I've been, uh, as we've been going through this series that Keith has started, um, I've been appointed the task of, well, okay, I chose the task of teaching a manual. And I chose it because, uh, quite frankly, I've been really busy and I thought I got loads of material on this, it'll be easy. It's not easy. Um, and that's because the, the theme is huge, right? Um, so we'll unpack what we can today. I just want to advertise, you know, it, it's, it might be a little all over the place. Um, but that's okay. We're in, in endeavoring to see what the scripture as a whole has to say about this Emmanuel theme. So uh, we're looking at Emmanuel, and of course we know this from the culture and having grown up or being attending church, that Emmanuel refers to this theme, the eternal Son of God, who for us and for our salvation was incarnate, became flesh, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Scripture mentions this specific word, Emmanuel, three, maybe four times, depending on how you parse it. So for your viewing pleasure as we go along, I've tried to give you all my proof texts where we're going. They're in order. Um, but, you know, in Isaiah 7, 14, 8, 8, and maybe 8, 10, it states in the Hebrew, Emmanuel, right? And so, uh, you know, Emmanuel, sometimes people ask the question, why are there two spellings, right? Uh, you know, this is following more of the Greek spelling, and this is following, whoopsie, Hebrew spelling, and this is following more of the Greek pattern, and it's nothing to get excited about. It's just, hey, they're different languages, and when you find a different language and you try to express it in another language, you got to make options with your alphabet, right? And so that's sort of the fallout there. Don't get caught up on that. Um, but, you know, when we look at the Hebrew, im is with, manu, is this idea of us, and L, of course, is God. You see that. So Emmanuel, in short, is the with us God, or in English syntax, God is with us, right? And so we're going to look at the historical iterations of this. Another passage where we see this is in the Gospel of Matthew, 123. You know, Matthew shows that Jesus is Emmanuel. Well, we could see Emmanuel as God is with us, or perhaps even God is on our side. Now, maybe if you're unfamiliar with the church calendar, or maybe even if you are, we can often tend to take an uncritical, hyper-sentimentalized idea of God with us. We might reason, of course he's with us. Isn't that his job, right? We have Joel Osteen, we have Oprah, we even have Hallmark, and even some pantheistic tendencies in the culture to coach us to be our best selves now. Of course God is with us has become an unquestioned assumption for many. Others even go further and they ponder, maybe he's not just with us, but maybe we're part of him, or maybe he's in us in some way. So speaks the popular sentimentality of many in the culture today. But the question we have, is this sentiment faithful to scripture? Now, of course, we will see that Emmanuel is God with us, okay, of course. But the question I want you to think about today, is God with us always to bless? Is he always with us to live our best life now? Is it possible that God might be with us to curse us? 
And that's a different proposition entirely. Now, that's not because Dan Phillips is a sadist and I'm looking to punish people and all that. No. The question is, what does Isaiah think about that? In Isaiah chapter 7, what's going on there? This first promise where we have this iteration of the language, Emmanuel, God with us, what's going on there? So we'll start out in Isaiah 6. Recall Isaiah's call to office in Isaiah 6, just before this Emmanuel promise in Isaiah 7, right? So Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah exits the throne room of God, a newly minted prophet to go do his prophetic task. In Isaiah 7, he gives this promise of Emmanuel. In Isaiah 6, we see, like all true prophets, he stood in the heavenly council chamber, and he witnessed God's majesty, his holiness, and his glory. First, we see God's majesty towering over Isaiah in Isaiah 6. God sits on his throne, and the skirts of his throne fill the temple, this 60-foot by 30-foot by 45-foot room. He's surrounded by angels that are crying praise that shook the doorposts of the temple, right? God's majesty is present for Isaiah to see. Secondly, we see God's holiness. It's seen in the sinless seraphim describing him as holy, holy, holy in Hebrew. Here are these holy beings standing before the throne of God with their wings, two covering their eyes, two covering their feet, and two with which they are flying, and they are chanting holy, holy, holy. This is the only place in the Bible where we have this repetition with Hebrew. If you wanted to say something was very good in Hebrew, you wouldn't yet. You don't have like really a, a word like very. You just say the word again, right? So holy, holy. He's really holy. This is the only time where you have that tw three times over. And so this picture that is being painted for us in Isaiah is of God being so holy that his holiness Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is of purer eyes than to look upon sin. And so this experience leads Isaiah to one of his most common phrases in the book, the Holy One of Israel. Okay? Isaiah refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. Third, we see that God's glory fills the earth. That's what the angels say, his glory fills the earth. Psalm 19, 1 and 4 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and their words to the ends of the world. It's for this reason, of course, that the Apostle Paul declares that the nations are without excuse because what has been known about God has been made manifest to them. How do they know about God? You know about God because of his created glory. Even within the created realm, there are beautiful things, things that make you go, wow. Well, when confronted with who God really is, majestic, holy, and glorious, what does Isaiah do? Isaiah didn't have the TV preachers with his remote control that he could change the channel or back up and listen to again. No, he's face to face with the glory of God, God's majesty and his holiness. Isaiah immediately in Isaiah 6, 5 says this, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, what he does there is he stops and he says, oh, I've seen God, I know who God is, but also this has given me a fresh appreciation for who I am. I live amongst these people that are wicked. I myself am wicked. 
I have unclean lips. Woe is me. That language of woe are the covenantal curses that Isaiah calls down upon Israel in chapter 3 of Isaiah. He's saying, I am unfit to be in the presence of the king. God's presence is here, but I'm not rejoicing in it. God is with me, but it is scary. Is he here to judge? That is Isaiah's concern. Isaiah sees that God is with him, and he's terrified. God has every right to judge both the prophet and his wayward people. But we see that God doesn't follow through with what Isaiah is worried about. Rather, God takes, has an angel go and take a burning coal from the altar, and he cleanses Isaiah's lips, and he sends him out, commissions him as a prophet to speak the word of the Lord. That's what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. So we move from Isaiah in the presence of an exalted heavenly king and his court, and then we find ourselves in chapter 7 in Isaiah. Please turn with me there. Isaiah 7, we have King Ahaz, a very different king. This is a rather pathetic king. He's the king of Judah after Israel and Judah have split. And King Ahaz is fighting for his political life in Isaiah chapter 7. The kings of Syria and Israel were attacking Jerusalem, and although they stalled for a bit, they were inevitably coming to depose him and set a new king over Judah. You can see that in 7, 1 through 7. You know, there's this plan, we're going to overthrow you, we're going to install our own king, he's going to do our will, it's going to be great. Well, so he's shaking in his boots. Ahaz had done what the nations of the world always do when you're threatened militarily. When we see Ahaz in verse 3 of chapter 7, Ahaz is inspecting the water supply. That is, a siege is coming, a long, drawn-out siege with these superior military powers. What do we need to do? We need to make sure we got a water supply. We need to make sure our supplies are good. We're going to hunker down in our bunkers and see if we can get through this. In addition, he hires Assyria, the king of Assyria, to come and help defend him from Syria and Samaria. Now, into this destruction, this situation of imminent destruction by Syria and Israel, God sends Isaiah. And we see this in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Thus says the Lord, It shall not stand, namely that these greater kings shall come and destroy you, nor shall it come to pass. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. Isaiah comes with a prophetic word of the Lord and says, Hey, stop worrying about the water supply. Stop worrying about these great superior powers. Rather, trust in the Lord. Now, Ian Duggan comments on this passage. He says, You can almost hear Ahaz say, Isaiah, that's a very nice message. I'm glad that you felt led to share that with me, brother. Now toddle back off to your prayer chamber because I've got a war to prepare for. Ahaz is able to see the present reality in front of him, and it is overwhelming, and all he can do is think like the nations of the world. Now, God is gracious. He offers Ahaz another chance. Look with me in 7.11 of Isaiah. God tells the prophet, Ask for a sign yourself. This is the prophet speaking to Ahaz. Ask for a sign yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. So God is saying, obviously you doubt me. You've already sought help from Assyria. 
um, you're interested in hunkering down in your bunker, ask for me a sign. I will give you any sign to show you that I will make good on my promise that this destruction of which you fear is not going to come to pass. But Ahaz, in a moment of extreme piety, responds, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, evidently, this king of Judah, who had obviously forgotten that the God of his Hebrew forefathers delivered them out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, who led them by pillar of fire and cloud, who fed them with manna and quail, and who drank from the rock, who repetitively saved his people through the judges, he suddenly developed a desire to honor God. I, I won't ask, nor will I test the Lord, Ahaz says. And he uses scripture to mask his distrust. We see Satan do that as well in Luke 4 and uh, uh, Matthew 4 as well. Well, Ahaz has already decided that he's not going to trust in the Lord. He's already trusted Syria and not God. So God promises a sign of his own. A sign that calls for faith despite Ahaz's present realities as his nation sits on the precipice of destruction. And that, of course, is the text we're looking at today, the Emmanuel text. Uh, 7.14 through 17 of Isaiah. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse evil and choose good. For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good that that land that you dread, right, Israel and Syria, uh, will be forsaken by both her kings. So God says, I'll give you a sign. There's going to be a woman, and she's going to bear a son, and he's going to exist, and the nation's not going to be destroyed. Now, this sign to Ahaz and his court will be a sign of God's faithfulness to his remnant people, despite the king's faithlessness. A young woman of marriageable age, translated in your text, virgin here, I would suppose, but it's not necessarily a virgin in the Hebrew. It's, it's a word called alma. Alma refers to a young woman of marriageable age, someone who's experienced puberty, someone who has strength and vigor. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, virgin. And I think as Christians and apologists, this is not some place where we need to fall on our sword. In uh, Isaiah 7:14, that is not necessarily the picture we have here. She will give birth to a son. Now, there's nothing supernatural or special about this particular child conception during Ahaz's reign. Rather, I want you to think about this. This is the normal stuff of human culture. What is more normal than a young woman conceiving, giving birth to a child, and being enamored with, and spending all of her time with a little child, so that it seems as though her whole world is nothing but meeting the needs of these little children? And mothers, you know what I'm talking about. Dads, we know to a lesser degree. But nonetheless, this sign is one that Ahaz, the nation's not going to be destroyed. Things are going to go on as normal. God will provide, right? This is the normal stuff of human culture. Now, think about this. We often hear people, maybe amongst our unbelieving friends, sometimes even in the church, we hear people complain. How could you possibly bring a child into a world like this? You've heard that one, right? I remember hearing it a lot when I was young. Sometimes it was kind of judgy, right? Why would you bring a, a, a child into a world where there is injustice, there's racism, there's hate, 
right? Why would you do that? The poverty, the pollution. Well, beloved, what I want you to see is what Isaiah is painting for us here is the reality of Judah. And the reality of Judah during Ahaz's reign was this was one of those times in human history when you would say, why would you bring a child into that world, right? This is like one of those times when you're thinking, are the children's heads going to be dashed amongst the rocks kind of moment. It's bad news. Well, this Alma that is promised in Isaiah, this fertile woman, responds in faith, and she chooses to have a child in the midst of a national crisis, and she names him God is with us, or maybe even God is on our side. Now, here's Ian Duggett again. What a stark contrast. The king of Judah may not believe that God is present with power to save, but this young mother does. Emmanuel is a sign that cuts both ways. God is present indeed, but is he present for blessing or cursing? That all depends on your response. Are you responding in faith like this young Alma, this young fertile woman? Or are you responding in unbelief like Ahaz? Ahaz faces a crisis. Will he respond in faith crying out to God for deliverance? Or in unbelief calling in the tanks of the king of Assyria? Ahaz, as we see, chooses unbelief. In that same crisis situation, a young woman proclaims her faith in God by calling her son Emmanuel, God is with us, when all the external realities would testify to something else being the case. That young woman's faith stands in condemnation to the unbelief of Ahaz. That's further uh, Professor Duggett's quote. Now, what does this account from Isaiah to the king of Judah have to do with Christmas? The apostle Paul, who in the first five chapters... The Apostle Matthew, who in the first five chapters of Matthew really majors in the themes of Jesus picking up Israel's unfinished business and showing fulfillment, um, he makes this clear with an unambiguous, supernatural, Christological reading of Isaiah 7.14, right? In Matthew uh, 1.23, it says, Behold, the virgin, and it uses Parthenos there, it's almost entirely always going to be virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. All possible ambiguity of the use of virgin in this case is done away with by the contexts of both the Matthew and Lucan accounts. Consider this. Mary says to the angel, how can this be? That is, how am I going to bear a son when I haven't known a man? Luke 1.34. Joseph, of course, was secretly planning on calling off the wedding as Mary was found to be with child when he had a dream of an angel of the Lord saying that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now we can't turn this into a full-orbed defense of the virgin birth of Christ but should you be tempted and up for a hard read uh, J. Gresham Machen's book The Virgin Birth of Christ is the standard. Uh, I would strongly encourage that. Um, but yes, in this case, in the New Testament, it's irrefutable. It's clear that the apostles are testifying to the fact that this God with us character that we're speaking of, Jesus, is born of a virgin and uh, he will take away his people's sins. Now, obviously, the virgin-born child of the Gospels isn't named Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel, 
The reality of God with us, and not merely a name or a title, or even the testimony of a pious young mother's faith in the midst of a bad situation. Jesus is God in the flesh, living amongst humanity. He is the true Emmanuel, who for us in our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, to fix all of humanity's bad situation. Not just a pious young woman's situation, not just a fractured kingdom of a kingdom on its downward slide in history, but humanity's situation of alienation from God and from each other. He will save his people from their sins. Do you belong to him? Do you belong to him? Is God with you to curse you or to bless you? Do you belong to him? Now, the Apostle John lays out the Emmanuel slash God is with us nature of Jesus Christ, namely the incarnate God. The Apostle John lays it out for us as clear as day. John 1.1, of course, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Skip down to 1.14. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. If the Word is God and he becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. Jesus, in fact, is Emmanuel, God with us. He shares our nature. Now, thus far, we've looked at Jesus as the fulfillment of the Emmanuel promise. God is with us. But this is a central theme in Scripture. It's even a pre-redemptive theme. It's a theme that exists before the fall into sin and death. It's there. The goal of God being with his people. God is with us. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is a resounding gong throughout scripture. It's also the theme of eternity. God with his people. In a place where there is no sin, there's no frustratability, there's no fall, where glory is experienced ultimately. If we can begin to plumb some of the depths of this theme, I believe we'll have a greater appreciation for this promise of Jesus as Emmanuel. And let's consider this. Uh, as we consider that, we'll, we'll begin by looking at a bit of theological topography. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether geography or topography is the right word here. I'm going to go with topography. Consider for a moment how often we see temples in scripture, but also in the world that are built on mountains. Think about mountain places of worship. Ancient ziggurats in Mesopotamia, they were grand staircases with a temple to the top. In South America, we have similar things, right? The Aztecs built temples where they would meet their deity at the top. Perhaps in the biblical story, you know, the Tower of Babel is a great example of a ziggurat being built. And of course, what do they promise? That we shall reach our way to the heavens. They're going to uh, seek after God by building this tower, right? Well, the idea is that as you build a tower and as you have a temple there, man could reach God. You'd get close to God. To this day in Eastern cultures, both Hindus and Buddhists often, not always, often place temples in mountains. Historically, that's been the case as well. Now, there's a reason for this. In the original terrestrial temple, namely Eden, as we'll see, it was a mountaintop. And although that idea of Eden as the original terrestrial temple has been blurred by years and remove, blurred by years of removal and sinful accretions, 
Humanity, in some degree, has remembered part of that theological topography in their collective mythologies. The idea that God is on high, and hence, if we're going to meet him, we need to build up, right? And hence, we see oftentimes temples are on mountaintops. So I want us to look at Eden and see Eden in Scripture. It's presented to us as a garden mountain, okay, as a garden temple. Um, Consider this for a moment. First, we see that a river, this is Genesis 2.10, a river flows out of Eden, and the river then breaks into four rivers which flow out from Eden. Four rivers flowing in different directions is consistent with the idea of a mountain, right? For rivers to flow, there has to be some elevation, right? It's like physics, like gravity, like water fluid dynamics, things I don't know much about. Um, but the idea is it's flowing down a mountain where four directions are easily available. Secondly, we see that in this temple that God creates in Eden, there's a temple servant, right? Here's Adam. The scripture tells us that he is to tend and keep the garden. That word keep is uh, shamar. It's the idea of guard, to protect, to stand fast and keep out those who would intrude, those who would profane the holiness of the garden. And so Adam's job, besides being like God and naming things, besides being like God and creating and procreating, being fruitful and multiplying, tough time to get into that, um, jo- his job is to guard the garden. His job is to exercise judgment on anything that will profane the holy garden sanctuary. Third, the garden even has its own backup security protocol, if you will, should Adam fail and profane the garden. God himself will be present to interrogate, to judge, and to convict Adam and all those who would enter in unholiness. This is Genesis 3.8. This is after the fall, of course, after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, and this is what they hear, this is what the text says, Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the spirit of the day. And Adam and his wives hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Notice I read spirit of the day and not cool of the day, which your text probably says. The Hebrew there is ruach, which is the same word used in 1-2 for the spirit was hovering over the deep, right? Uh, it's the, I would encourage you to see this. This is not, uh, you know, God's going for a stroll like he always does in the afternoon in a nice place in the summer, not like Vegas. Uh, he's walking in the cool of the day, and he's, oh, Adam. No, I would encourage you to see this text is God has come in a spirit of judgment. His presence is there not as a presence to bless, but as one to curse. And, of course, we see that in the passage that something has changed, Right? Adam and Eve had changed. They had changed from accurate reflectors of the glory of God's blinding holiness into smashed reflectors that might pass muster if they're parked in the shade on an overcast day, but they absolutely fail when they're exposed to the everlasting light and glory of God. Adam and Eve hide. They know something's wrong. They're trying to cover themselves with anything at hand. So they seek to be like God. God calls them to create and make and be productive and all those things that we want to see our kids do. But uh, in terms of, I'm lacking a word, Uh, creative, I guess that's kind of repetitive. But uh, 
They're creative in that they go and they find fig leaves and they start up this new clothing business and they find out that, well, it really doesn't pass muster. They create fig leaves to cover their previously unexperienced to them nakedness. God isn't fooled. He sees through it. God evicts these wicked tenants. Absent a faithful Adam to obey and to guard his garden temple, the text tells us in 324, he places cherubim at the east way of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way. Did I not get it in there? Hey, there we go. Ezekiel 28, 13 through 15. In Ezekiel 28, it says this. And here's God looking at the king of Tyre and just sort of uh, envisioning him as a, uh, a perfect being, as it were. Uh, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onks, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. It's worth noting, all of those would, although perhaps heavy, uh, would be a heck of a lot better coverings than figs. On that day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed a guardian cherub. Hmm, this cherub that guards the garden, maybe in some sense this king of Tyre is being a, a guardian, right? Uh, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So we see in Ezekiel, it's taking the account of creation and the garden and the temple and the fall, and it's putting it, now this is, you know, some people interpret this passage as talking about the fall of Satan as a possible application because obviously Adam's not a cherubim, right? He's not an angel, Satan is, and we're not going to get into that, but the point is, is that the reflection of uh, where I'm going with Eden as a garden temple of the holiness of God being localized in a creative environment is there. Notice in this passage, we see the garden called a holy mountain, right? Verse 14. We see a guardian function of its inhabitant. Uh, verse 14. We see the holy nature of the place upheld and implied because God removes them from the holy. And we see that in verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, there's much more that could be said, but Scripture envisions Eden as a visual replica of the created heavens, a place where God dwelt by His Spirit, namely the first temple. Now, notice the terms of temple worship in Eden. As our larger catechism, number 20, puts it, for those to enter into the presence of God, what is required is personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That is what is required, a personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience for an already gloriously beautiful Adam and Eve, equal image bearers in God's sight. 
but we see in the text in Genesis 3 that they fail. Instead of personally walking back and forth amongst the fiery stones that we see in Ezekiel 28 in this garden temple, rather we see sinful man in the person of Isaiah needing a coal, one of those fiery stones as it were, to come and purify him before he's fit for service in God's holy temple. So as far as humanity is concerned, Eden is a special place. How do we ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, in Eden, it has to do with personal, perfect, perpetual obedience for a glorious creation, something totally within their wheelhouse. But we'll see that as we look at other examples of God being with his people in temple environments, that's not how it works. It's rather more along the lines of, let me cleanse your lips before you are suitable for service. Rather than seeing God abandon his rebellious creation after Adam and Eve's fall into sin and misery, rather we see him double down on this theme of he being our God and we being his people. And we see this in different iterations throughout redemptive history. This idea of a mountain where God meets with his people is a recurring theme in the post-fall world. After the fall into sin and death, we see God setting up temples, setting up places where he seeks and desires and meets with his people. In Genesis, we see this idea of recreation as a distinction between the sacred and profane in the ark, Noah's ark. God separates the holy, namely Noah and what, seven or eight others. God separates the holy from the profane. How does he do that? There's judgment. There's a flood. There's a whole world order ending. There's a last day, and it's done. But he saves eight people on the ark. God separates the holy from the profane through the flood. And he issues forth in a new creation. And notice in the account with Noah and the ark, after the waters have done their job of exercising judgment, there's a spirit that blows forth through the land and it cleanses the waters out. And where does the ark set? But on top of a mountain, right? It's on the top of Ararat. Secondly, we see in Moses, in, in Exodus, we meet Moses, meet God face to face on Sinai. And it's there on Sinai at the top of the mountain where, there's a lot we could say here, where, where uh, Moses receives the law and he has plans for building the tabernacle. And the tabernacle we see is that place where God would meet with his people during their time as pilgrims, nomads, and a wandering people. That same function that we see in the tabernacle gets placed into a more permanent environment. I say more permanent, not permanent. Shame on you if you think it's permanent and you're funding those kinds of things. Um, but a more permanent environment where suddenly the, the temple cultus made around the tabernacle is localized, right? It's put on Mount Zion. It's put on Jerusalem. And where is Jerusalem? Now, I, I get it. By some people's standards, none of the mountains in Israel are really mountains, but they're hills, right? You'll get a good sweat going up them, but it's, it's put on a mountain, okay? Jerusalem, Mount Zion is the type, uh, top of a mountain. We move to the New Testament. We see that after Matthew artfully shows Jesus recapitulate Israel's history, that Jesus in Matthew 5 sits down on a mountain with his people and gives the Sermon on the Mount, he sits there and he clarifies. Moses gave the, the law, or was given the law, on the top of Mount Sinai. Jesus gives the law as the law giver on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. 
Another glimpse of God with his people on mountains is in the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John witness Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah, and we see the representative of the law, Moses. We see the representative of the prophets, Elijah, fade away, and the Father commands, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah disappear. It's no surprise then that the final image, temple imagery, is on a mountain. Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 24, pictures heaven, which is the current reality participated in by the believer, and which you are called to in worship. Here's a Hebrews 12. Into the voice of those whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, and the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. That is what you were called to in worship. As we come today, you participate with saints and angels of old, angels of eternity, uh, created eternity anyhow. Saints and angels of old, you come and you worship in Mount Zion, that place, that heavenly temple that all of these were pointing to. Now, we've looked at some themes of the presence of God and mountains as it relates to Emmanuel. And I hope I made that clear in all of these temple iterations. The point here is God is with his people. God is with his people. But it doesn't come easily. I hope, uh, you know, this, certainly this study is not exhaustive. Um, I hope it hasn't been too exhausting, but it's admittedly been hard to limit, and we could have taken, uh, with a little homework on my behalf, um, we could have taken several of these examples and, and fleshed them out. But I hope that this has uh, been something that you can appreciate about your Savior. What have we seen? God persists in pursuing a people that the Emmanuel promise might come to fruition. We've seen a, a movement from getting kicked out of the garden temple to being welcomed into an eternal temple, not built with human hands, but rather achieved by faith in Jesus because he has entered into the Holy of Holies. The access we enjoy in the temple is granted by a temple guardian who personally perfectly and perpetually obeyed God. Whereas Adam failed in temptation, the second Adam was victorious over Satan when Satan had even the home court advantage. Because of his victory, he brings heaven down to us so that we can be in his presence because as the God-man, he has been able to extinguish the fires of hell for humans. Jesus now, by his word and spirit, is gathering together worshipers in spirit and truth who will join him in his Father's many rooms. He's gone to prepare a place for you as you trust in him. But just like the days of Ahaz, there's a question. Will you trust in the Lord with all your heart 
or will you lean on your own understanding? Will you be like Ahaz, who only trusts in what he sees? Think on that. Jesus says there's no way to the Father but by him. Now, there are numerous hints to other subjects as we go through this, uh, you know, significant topics that would need to be addressed. The covenant of works in the garden, the covenant of grace in its iterations as we see through all of these examples. Uh, the idea of Sabbath, that's a huge topic as it applies to God with us. God calls us into his eternal Sabbath. And uh, justification, these are just some examples of things we could study. But in keeping with our theme of Emmanuel and mountains, I'd like to consider uh, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. And as I read this psalm, uh, I want you to think, how would you teach this to your children? Or if you're a preacher, a teacher, how would you preach this passage? Think about this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Those are question marks. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. How ought we to read Psalm 24? It's not rhetorical. Given what we've learned about mountains and the presence of God. You want to go? I, I, I didn't hear you. Yeah, who, 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 who? So the question is who? Maybe the questions we should focus on, maybe I should limit it. Who and how? Who shall ascend to the hill and how shall we ascend that hill? Maybe your teacher has failed. So when it comes to the question of ascending the hill of the Lord, this place, the mountain of God, the eternal Mount Zion, the place where God dwells, this created glorious place where the eternal, infinite, and eternal God meets with a people for himself, how do we get there? Well, we talked about Adam, personal, perfect, perpetual obedience on his own behalf. But in all of these iterations, there is a different way. Well, I guess we could take this one out because this is Jesus. But in all those other ones, uh, ascending to the hill of the Lord, there's only one man that ascends the hill of the Lord. And his name isn't Dan. His name isn't whatever your name is. Okay? We ascend to the hill because of Jesus. And Jesus is the great hiker. He has a phenomenal backpack. And it's a backpack that we participate by union with Christ. And as we're united with him by faith, all that he has and is and has done, he has and is and has done for us. So that when Jesus ascends to the hill of the Lord into the everlasting eternal Mount Zion, we enter with him. So will you be like Ahaz and look for the things of this world to manipulate, to find the right special sauce to make you imagine you've found holiness? Or will you trust in the Savior that God has provided, that perfect temple guardian who cast Satan out, the one who has the gall and the unction and the ability to say, get thee behind me, Satan.
and he conquers him. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for Jesus, that he's God with us as we celebrate him this Christmas. Uh, we pray, Father, that we would see his coming as a baby, as Emmanuel, but we would also see his coming as the one who would bring us to the final temple and the one that will bring heaven down. We look forward to that day. Help us to love our neighbor in the spirit of that message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.